So we're, um, we're picking up in our study. We've been going through the book of Galatians these last couple of weeks. And, and as we come to chapter two, uh, we see Paul the apostle um, as a freedom fighter. Um, not perhaps a political freedom fighter, but a freedom fighter for spiritual freedom. Paul will latch on to tr the truth of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ like a dog on a bone, regardless of the acceptance or the pushback he gets from people around him. And we'll see that kind of come to fruition as we look at this, um, these issues that are taking place in the churches of Galatia. Uh, he's addressing the bondage that the law puts on the people of God because it's a standard, the law is a standard that, that's just not possible to keep. That's the problem with the law. That's the problem with religion, right? When we, when we look to religion, we look to the law to accomplish what, our, our ability to be reconciled to God. When we look to the law, it's frustrating. You know why? Because you can't keep it. You can't fulfill it. And so every time we kind of look at the, the rules, the law of God, we're reminded of our inability to keep the law of God. And so what was happening in the churches of Galatia is that they were, they were turning back to the law and they were incorporating the works of the law with the gospel of grace. And Paul is addressing this error that is taking place in the church and defining it as putting a yoke of bondage back on the people of God. The grace of God, the gospel of grace, sets us free from religion. It sets us free from, from systems and, and requirements that can never be met. The gospel of grace is a gospel of freedom. But creeping into those churches in Galatia were these creepy people who are bringing some new information, adding, seeking to add to the gospel of grace, telling people that they needed to hold tightly to the law in order to be a Christian. And so Paul reminding them that a return to the law is a return to chains. It's a return to bondage. That's what religion does. Religion doesn't bring life, it brings death. It doesn't bring hope. It brings hopelessness. It doesn't bring joy. It brings shame, it brings guilt. It doesn't bring freedom, but it brings, it brings bondage. And too many people in an attempt to try religion have settled for religion and have not made that connection, have not crossed over the line in having a relationship with Jesus. And so they can't experience the benefits of, religion, of, of relationship in a way that religion can never provide. Jesus came not to provide a religion for us, but to provide a relationship, a restoring of creation to creator. So man can walk as he was designed to walk in fellowship, in communion, in wholeness with God. And what these false teachers were saying to the churches in Galatia was that if you didn't first become a Jew, you couldn't become a Christian. Now, the Jews had no problem with that message because in the sense they, they were already Jews, but, but the, and because the gospel came through the Jews. 
But as the gospel was beginning to expand outside the Jewish realm and into the Gentile world, these religious leaders were saying, well, before you embrace the gospel of grace, before you become a Christian, you need to first become a Jew. And the way you become a Jew is to be circumcised. Because to be circumcised meant that it was, it was an outward expression of your embracing of all of Judaism. That's an appealing message, huh? You see, submitting to circumcision meant that you were accepting and you were obeying all of the Jewish law, which would then alienate them from the truth of the gospel. Hence the dilemma that was taking place in chapter two. The dilemma caused no small problem in the church. As a result of these mixed messages, there was, there was confusion, there was dissension, there was, uh, there was a divide amongst the people. And as I mentioned last week, what they sought to do was to try to present a gospel that would appease the Jews and the Gentiles alike, something that would be palatable and acceptable to all people, acceptable to anyone, everyone other than God. Because the moment that you deviate from the truth of the gospel, you are holding onto a gospel that is not true and that does not save. And so with the tenacity, the firmness of a prophet, the apostle Paul addresses and calls the church to return back to the gospel. With the heart of a shepherd, he will appeal to them to remember what God has done in them and turn from that. Even more, what was taking place is the confusion and the dissension in the church was causing a divide. But, but Paul sought to bring unity around the truth of, the God's, of, God, of God's word, around the message. In the beginning, as we looked at last week, Paul, as he oftentimes has to do in the epistles, Paul's needing to validate his apostleship. Not because he needed a pat on the back, right? But, or not because of any other reason, but everywhere Paul went, people would remember that he was Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. And they would oftentimes try to discredit his apostleship. Why? Because if you could discredit his authority, then you could discredit his message. And so oftentimes Paul would have to communicate that his authority came not from the nod of a board, not because the apostles affirmed him, but his authority came from none other than Jesus Christ himself. And we saw last week that Paul wasn't looking outward for anybody else's affirmation, but he is looking upward and as he's receiving the call from none other than Jesus Christ himself. But now as we come into chapter two, Paul doesn't highlight his independence from the other apostles as he did in the first part of the first chapter in, 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 in communicating his authority. But now he instead he highlights his partnership with them as he seeks to resolve the confusion that existed within the churches in Galatia. What was going on, and I love this because I think it gives us a great example of leadership in the apostle Paul. When it came to needing to 
demonstrate his authority. He wasn't looking for the approval of other people. He was saying, listen, Jesus is the one that called me to this. But now there's a problem in the church. There's dissension in the church. And he doesn't rely just on his own resources. But now he goes to the apostles. He goes to the brethren. He goes to those who have embraced the message of grace. And together, working in partnership under the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit, they gather together. Now to get a better understanding of what was going on in this church, we must kind of take a seat at a table of a meeting that took place in Jerusalem. To really kind of appreciate the text that we're gonna look at in Galatians, we would do well to kind of look at, at, at a meeting that took place, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 15, you can start heading over there. But there's a council, the Jerusalem council takes place in, in um, Acts chapter 15. So we're gonna go on a field trip this morning. We don't have to leave the seats, but we're gonna go take a ride over to Acts chapter 15. And we're gonna get the context, because sometimes, sometimes we can really, if we don't have the context of what's going on, we, we miss a lot of what's being communicated, right? And so as I was preparing for this, I, I kind of hesitated in, in, in reading through the, the Jerusalem Council meeting because sometimes if I start to read, people take that as permission to take a snooze. So, but you know what, we got so we need to dig in a little deep right now, I won't read long, but I, I want us to kind of get a, 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 the gist of what's going on at this meeting because it's at this meeting in the, this Jerusalem Council that Paul, and, and is, is um, released to go and address these issues in the church. Acts chapter 15, verse one. You with me? Everybody's awake? All right, good, let's go. Chapter 15, verse one. But some came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so Paul and Barnabas hear the lie, they confront the lie, they, they have this, I love this, there's no small dissension in a debate. That's a nice spiritual way of saying they had a fight. Right? And it got heated and it got really intense, so much so that they go out to Jerusalem and they reach out to the brothers. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the, more, the law of Moses. And so you gotta love this. So now they arrive in Jerusalem and they start telling, hey man, you gotta see what God is doing amongst the Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas are starting to share how God is meeting them right where they're at, where they're, they're being converted, they're, being, they're, they're experiencing the power of the gospel lived out in their lives. And the Jewish Pharisees that are there, they rise up and they, I'm sure they slam their hand on the table. And they say, that's really, that's really, really good, fine and good, but listen, it's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. And now the fight begins. Now the issue is out there on the table. The small talk is over and the heat is turned up. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, ha them having cleansed their hearts by faith. I love what Peter says here. He's like, hey, listen, don't forget that vision I had where God was saying that the gospel was moving beyond just the Jews to all the Gentile world. And we are to accept these brothers as brothers. And he's saying that we saw the Holy Spirit at work in them in the same way that the Holy Spirit was at work in us. And the Holy Spirit made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. I love that. Why would you put a yoke on them that they're not capable of satisfying? Why would you tell them now, after having experienced salvation, that they would need to now appeal to the law, knowing that we or our fathers couldn't possibly keep it, neither can they. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I love the appeal and the passion of Peter. He still had his preach on from, from Acts chapter two when he got out of the upper room and, and, and he preached the gospel and 3,000 got saved. He stood up amongst all of them with boldness and fire in his eyes and brought truth. And it says, and all the assembly fell silent. What do you say to that? And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter gets done presenting this message. He sits down and now, and then there's silence, crickets everywhere. And now Paul and Barnabas get up and now they start to communicate. Let me tell you how the Holy Spirit met them. Let me tell you what the works, the signs and wonders that God had worked amongst the Gentiles and story after story after story as Paul was demonstrating how these Gentile believers embraced Jesus and were saved. Slide on down to verse 22. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the, among the brothers. They sent them with this following letter. This is the conclusion of the Jerusalem council. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, that's what deception does. It creates dissension and confusion. They're unsettled minds. He says, although we didn't send them, we didn't give them instructions to do that. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And so the final summary of the meeting is they come together, they come into agreement, they're in one accord, using the word here, and they, and they say, listen, we are, we are saved by grace alone. They draft this letter and they send, the, they send Paul and Barnabas out and, and others. And now they go into these different churches, Galatia being one of them, the churches in Galatia, which we'll be, we'll be looking at. They've got the word, they've come into agreement, and there's unity. And I love what he says here, just as a side note, if I could do a quick little detour. He says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and, and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will, you will do well. I like this being included, not that it matters what I think, but, but I just see the wisdom of God in keeping that in there because it presents a healthy tension that needs to exist. Oftentimes in the church, in the Protestant church that recognizes that we are saved by grace apart from our works, oftentimes the message is, well then I don't need to worry about doing any works. And it can, it can create a real apathy. There can be such a, such a unbiblical, unhealthy dependence on grace that it can lead and invite to very loose living, to do what a person wants to do, to fulfill whatever passions they desire. And so what, what, what the disciples put in this letter here is that it would be well for you that you abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled. In other words, what he's highlighting here is just because you are saved by grace, that doesn't mean you can return back to what was very common in the first century. This idea of sacrificing to idols, idols drinking the blood, the strangling of these animals, not to get graphic, but that meant if they strangled them, they didn't bleed them out, and so they'd eat these things, they'd still be drink, internalizing the blood. Sounds vile, doesn't it? Sounds horrible to think that Christians would participate in idolatry such as that. But notice he also includes something here as well. In addition, to eating things sacrificed to idols and from blood and what is strangled, he says, and stay away from sexual immorality. It just shows the high standard that God puts on sexual purity, whether you're married or not married. We live in a culture as they did. He's addressing things that were taking place in very common and very acceptable in the Gentile world in the first century. But here we are now in the 21st century, and you know what? We're not very far from them. And it just, it just kind of highlights the disdain that God has for sexual, sexual immorality. And so the, the, the big picture, the big point here is that freedom doesn't mean license to pursue sinful passions. Freedom provides power to say no to those things, not to earn your salvation, but because of your salvation. So Acts chapter 15 gives us a good backdrop as to what Paul will now address with the churches in Galatia. I want to point out something really important here, that, that Paul, was, Paul was certainly a freedom fighter, but he wasn't a renegade. He led strongly, but he didn't lead alone. 
I think it's really important. It's a great lesson for us to, to see in the great Apostle Paul here. You see, it just highlights the power of community. I mean, there was a problem in the church. There was dissension in the church. And Paul could have went in there like a bull in a china closet and blew it all up, but he didn't do that. He appeals to his brothers. He appeals to the apostles. He goes to Jerusalem, and it just kind of highlights for us that there's a way to deal with issues. It models for us how conflict ought to be handled. And we'll, I'll cover a little bit more of that as we get further down the road. But he led strongly, but he didn't, he didn't lead alone, which I think is very significant. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. He's talking about this trip to Jerusalem that we just read about, the Jerusalem council, that he had gone up there and it brought Titus along with me. And he said, I went up there out of, because of a revelation. Obviously, God was leading him, right? He, the Apostle Paul is obeying the revelation of Jesus. And like what he says here, he says, I did that in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, I want to make sure that my message is consistent with the message that's coming out of Jerusalem. At no point did Paul question whether what he was saying was accurate. It wasn't like Paul was wondering, hey, do, do, did I get this whole grace and works thing wrong? What Paul was doing is he wanted to make sure that the brothers that he was walking with in Jerusalem were maintaining the same message as he was. He wanted to make sure that everybody who was in a position of authority, namely the apostles, were all on the same page. It's always good to seek clarity from those who you're running with. And so Paul's like, before I blow this whole thing up, let's just make sure, are we all on the same page? I wanna make sure that I'm not running or had not run in vain. Are we together in this? And, and as, as, as now that we have read Acts chapter 15 and saw clearly they were together. He says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Thomas, Titus was, was a Greek convert, and so he had a vested interest in making sure they got this right. right? Titus, as a young man, was not interested in being circumcised. right? And so he had a vested interest in making sure they got this thing right. And, and as, the, as the Jews were urging him to be circumcised, he knew the gospel of grace. He's ex he experienced justification by grace alone. And so Paul writes, but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. Yet, because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that it might bring us back into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I love this. Do you, see the, do you see the passion in Paul here? Do you see what Paul likens, what they were appealing to and embracing, this incorporating works into the gospel? He calls it that, he says, they're bringing us back into slavery. That's what religion does. Religion binds you up. Religion holds you down. Religion keeps you back. And he's saying these creeps creeped in and they sought to bring you back into slavery. Yet we did not yield in submission 
not even for a moment, not this freedom fighter. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, the gunny for Titus, man, if we can get Titus to get circumcised, if we can get Titus, the running mate of the apostle Paul, if we can get Titus circumcised, that would validate our message. So they're gunning for Titus. Titus. Verse six, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Again, those are little parentheses, a little, it gives us a little insight into the heart of Paul. Paul wasn't impressed by people's positions. Remember, he had many of those titles at one time, one time himself. And from those who seem to influential, be influential, those, I say, who seem to be influential, they, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when, I, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, for his apostleship also worked in me, for the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's, kind, of re, he's kind of recalling the, what they all agreed to in Acts chapter 15. He's reminding them of the grace that has been given to them to re, given to him to reach to the uncircumcised. He's referring to the Jerusalem Council in this meeting in Acts 15 where they came into full agreement, in firm agreement, that circumcision or any works, apart, any works of the law weren't necessary for salvation. And Acts 15 gives us a, a nice peek behind the curtain to see how the content that Paul brings to the churches in Galatia was affirmed and confirmed by the apostles. I think it's important because it demonstrates, as I said before, that when, that when disagreements happen and conflict arises, does that ever happen in your life? I mean, the church has dealt with this stuff for centuries. And we've, been just, we've just been let in on a meeting of what could have been a huge church split. If the, Paul, if the Apostle Paul would have just went in and just blew it all up, it could have been disastrous. But we see in Acts chapter 15 how the church is to handle conflict. You don't handle it unilaterally. You handle it as community. You handle it as a body of believers. Of believers. You handle it dependent upon and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see taking place there. There's a good way that conflict ought to be handled when godly people lean on the Lord, lean on the direction of the Holy Spirit, leave their agenda to the side. Things get handled in a godly way. Conflict should never be the cause of division. Conflict should be the cause for greater clarity and greater unity. Conflict can be your best friend. I don't know about you, I'm crazy like this. I like conflict. I really do. Not because I like hurting people or being hurt by people, but, but conflict raises the awareness to the fact that something needs to be fixed. Something 
that I thought was clear apparently wasn't clear. And so what conflict does is it invites us into a conversation, if we're mature enough to get there, so that we can bring clarity and walk in greater unity. And that's exactly what takes place here in Acts chapter 15, and that's what Paul is making reference to in Galatians. That this conflict brought to the surface a clear teaching on the gospel of grace. Conflict is one of the best ways of identifying when and where a problem is. Sadly, what happens when conflict arises is the defenses go up, people take everything personal, right, and not you, but I've read in a book somewhere that that's what happens, right? And what ends up happening is the issue gets put aside and now it's no longer working on the issue, now it's a fight between the people. And now what ends up happening is winning the argument becomes more important than winning the person and clarifying truth. And that rings true in churches, in families, in marriages, in, in any kind of organization, any place that people are present, it has the potential of conflict and how you view conflict, conflict will have everything to do with number one, what resources you will use to speak into it. Well, if you just go, oh, I just have a hunch, you don't have an argument. What resources will you use? There's nothing worse than having a debate with somebody that they only look inwardly as, their own, their, as the only source of authority. Have you had those great conversations? Well, that's just what I believe. Yeah, but, but nobody else has believed that. Well, that's what I feel. It doesn't matter what you feel. You've been tainted by your past, whatever it may be. So we need to have sources outside of ourselves. It has everything to do with how you resolve it. How are we gonna deal with this? How are, you going to how are you going to resolve this conflict? Listen, conflict isn't to be resolved on a text message or on a Facebook chat or forum or whatever, right? Face to face. Go to your brother, Matthew 18. Jesus says in Matthew 18. And it also has everything to do with whether you'll grow from it or not. The potential, the positive potential that conflict will bring has everything to do with what resources you use that speak into it, how you resolve it, and whether or not you choose to grow from it. And so in the context of what Paul is addressing, there clearly was conflict in the church. There was erroneous teaching taking place that was causing division, it was causing disunity, it was causing a departure amongst the people, and so Paul uses resources outside of himself to deal with it. What was it? The first one was the, his revelation from Jesus Christ. The, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the word of God. Secondly, he used, he partners with the other apostles and the leaders in the church. He doesn't unilaterally get in there and fix the problem. He appeals to others who have embraced the truth of the message. He uses resources outside of himself, and then what we end up seeing is, how is it resolved? Well, they, they met. The Jerusalem Council takes place. They discussed the issues. They didn't, clearly, they did not tiptoe around it, afraid of offending anybody that wasn't high in their priority list. They blew it up. Let's get it all on the table. Clearly, they prayed and as he pointed out, the Holy Spirit led them. 
and which resulted in growth. They came out with a greater clarity to the message of grace, a clear message that needed, that was starting to be attacked. It resulted in a win. The win was seen in the shared embracing of truth that salvation is by the grace of God. And I don't know if this was recorded anywhere, but I'm sure Titus was like, <laughs> right? Now the guidelines have been set in Acts chapter 15. Our mission is clear. Our message is firm. Salvation is not by works. It's not by systems. It's not by religion. It's by the grace of God. And everybody came into agreement with it, right? Wrong. Everybody came into agreement with it, but not everybody moved out on what they knew to be true. In fact, even the apostle Peter, who affirmed this truth in the conversations in Jerusalem, he failed to put this truth in motion in his own life. This next section that we look at shows why Paul was known as a freedom fighter, regardless of who agreed with him. Because even one of the pillars of the church, even one of the three closest disciples of Jesus, even the great, well-respected apostle Peter, doesn't put this in motion in his own life. Let's take a look, verse 11 of chapter three. But when Cephas, Peter, but when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's some strong words. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so here he is, here's Peter hanging with the Gentiles, they're eating together, and here come the Jews, like, hey guys, I'll catch you later. Hey, what's up? Didn't want to be seen with the Gentiles. And Paul's like, I opposed him to his face because he was guilty, he was content, condemned. And the rest of the Jews, look at the words, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, he just called the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, a hypocrite. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Barnabas, my running mate. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There's a showdown. I mean, this is crazy. A battle between these two spiritual giants, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. What are we to make of this? I mean, there's, there's no lack of attempts in trying to clean this up and make it look good or make it look better than it is. No matter how hard you try, this is ugly. It happens publicly. What do we have here? What we have on display, the immaturity, 
and the humanity of the Apostle Peter. How is it possible that following a great meeting in Jerusalem, I mean, you remember that, Paul, Peter's the one that stood up. Peter's the one that kind of got everybody convinced. Peter's the one that rallied the crowd. Peter's the one that called them forward. Peter's the guy that, that stood strong. But he caves when the, the Jews come to town and he's caught with the Gentiles and he runs in a different direction. What, what do you make of this? Why and how, how, how does somebody do that? We don't have to wonder. Paul answers the question for us. Fearing the circumcision party, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. I thank God that examples like this have been preserved for us in the scriptures. It's it, it just, just, just kind of just another affirmation that the word of God is an inspired book because the reality of it is if it was written by men that wanted to paint these apostles in the best of light, they would have left that out there. But what we have here is you and me. What we have here is the humanity of Peter, even the immaturity of Peter. What we have here is Peter not wanting to upset the Jews in fear of the circumcision. The, the Jews of the circumcision, he withdraws. You know, the scripture never presents perfect people. Oh, thank God. It only presents a perfect God who works through imperfect people. And I'm a candidate for that. I can, I can follow that kind of a God. I could follow, I could, I could walk that kind of a standard. I, I have no desire to be imperfect. I don't want to mess up or do anything, but I just know that in my frailty, I know my frame. But God will work on me and he'll work on you. And I just, I just, I just want to kind of highlight the fact that we can, we can look at our own spiritual journey sometimes and get so disgusted with ourselves and measure ourselves up by everybody. But that was pretty bad what Peter did. I mean, call it what it is. But it's a reminder that God is working on his people. Now, obviously, thank God, Peter doesn't crash and burn, right? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't depart. He, he recovers. And in fact, as you read through his epistles, he affirms the apostle Paul. The relationship was restored. It was a heated moment. But we have a snapshot into the humanity and immaturity of Peter. And we have a bigger glimpse of the goodness and the grace of God that is able to bring Peter through that season and use him in powerful ways. But you can see why the apostle Paul was so effective and why Paul was known as a freedom fighter. He wasn't afraid of anybody except God in a healthy way. He, was, he had an unbending commitment to the gospel. He was unmoved by popular opinion. He wasn't going to be influenced by anyone, even Peter. Because what's at stake for Paul is the integrity of the gospel. The, the, the book of Galatians is all about putting before our, the, the forefront of everything 
the, the, the importance of maintaining the gospel without diluting it in any way. And what we see here is Paul holding firm to the gospel, the only gospel that can save. And it's been preserved for you and I to challenge our own hearts, to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves the, the, the question, what am I willing to lose for the sake of the gospel? How committed to this truth of the gospel am I really? Because that will be tested. That will be tested. It's better to divide from people than it is to divide from truth. But that is why it is so important to know the gospel. It is why it's so important to not just lean upon what you're taught on a Sunday, but that you'd make the word of God a part of your daily life, your daily bread, so that when error comes, you can spot it in a moment, regardless of who's bringing it. This is the message of Galatians. And Paul will continue to build on the importance of holding tightly to the gospel. We'll look at that next week. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for how you have preserved it for us through the centuries. We recognize from the first century to the 21st century, people haven't changed one bit. And so, Father, we just are thankful that, um, that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Father, I pray that as we as we continue to focus on the gospel, we recognize that there's no updates that are needed, there's no changes, there's no tweaks, there's, there's no contextualization that needs to happen. I pray, Father, that you would raise us up as a standard of truth to bring the message of truth to a world that so desperately needs it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.